Today, we're privileged to welcome back Pastor Kevin Butcher, an author and lead pastor of Hope Community Church in Detroit. Last weekend, Kevin taught us that being grounded in Christ's love isn't about knowing more or trying harder, but about being healed and set free. We're grateful to have Kevin back this Father's Day weekend as he shares more about Christ's love for us and the power of community. Join us in welcoming back Pastor Kevin Butcher. Thanks so much. I really don't know how to tell you, sons and daughters of God, how um, meaningful this week has been for me and for my family, even though my wife and, of course, my three daughters spread around the country could not be here. Um, they have felt the impact of your love on our family. I, I've got to say <clears throat> publicly thanks to my, my dear brother, Jamie, Pastor Jamie, and uh, to the elders and to the staff for just um, um, sharing the love of Christ back with me, even as I've attempted to be present to all of you. And the love for my wife, Carla, I, I really... Um, I don't know, I think it's shocked me and surprised me that folk who don't know us at all have been so gracious. Someone this morning even walked up and said, here's a a prayer blanket for your wife so that when she's struggling, she can just wrap it around her shoulders and know that the love of Christ is with her. I mean, uh, who does that kind of thing? Well, apparently Scottsdale Bible Church does. So, in fact, this week, um, Carla sent me a picture and uh, this is my wife, Carla. I just wanna go over here and go like this, you know. But those are Scottsdale Bible flowers that got sent from your staff. Someone just said, I think we need to do this. And so, again, I can't tell you how much it means to us. So, um, so much I want to share this morning. And uh, because I won't see you again for for quite a while, if ever, hopefully sometime again soon. Uh, But um, let me just talk about what we shared last week to kind of segue us into this week. We talked about the fact that we're in a spiritual battle with an enemy who hates our guts and is determined to keep us from reaching other sons and daughters of God who have been died for by Christ. They just may not know it yet. And so he damages our emotions and he um, lies to us with paradigm lies, false beliefs. Um, We talked about those. We read off some of those false beliefs. And of course, he traumatizes us. Um, He puts us in a situation where um, by his wounding, we we literally get stuck and we need someone to heal us. Thank God we talked about last week. We have a Jesus who, uh, when he um, came out of obscurity, he took the scroll of Isaiah and read Isaiah 61, said, I've come to heal the brokenhearted and set the captives free. And he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. His mission is to heal the woundedness of the enemy so that we can be free to go out in his name and touch other sons and daughters of God and bring them home. And so the question that we ended with last week is how in the world do we get that done? And so let me just, um, another segue, talk about my granddaughter Ada and a story that, uh, well, it's actually, she's the one that launched me about four years ago into a deeper search for how that healing really occurs. I wanna show you a picture of her, Um, that's, that's my granddaughter, Ada, and that is her personality. Her eyes aren't always like that, but she was <clears throat> taking a selfie with my phone. I didn't know it, of course, until I looked at my pictures later, and there she was about four times with eyes like that. 
Well, this little pumpkin, when she was about two and a half years old, we, uh, I went to uh, stay with my daughter and son-in-law just to see uh, Ada and her, I think her, at that point, newborn uh, uh, baby brother, Mac. And um, <clears throat> I was kind of burnt out from church, so I didn't go to church that day. And uh, Ada and, and the family went to church, and then when they got home, she bounded into, my, uh, into the living room where I was greeting them because the dog had gone nuts, and so I knew they were on their way in. And she bounded in at the age of two and a half and looked up at me, you know, just strutting like she's prone to do. And she says, I had good church today, Papa. Good church. Good church. And so immediately I got tears in my eyes and I wasn't sure why. I thought this isn't a sad thing. It's a good thing. My little two and a half year old granddaughter had good church. But I realized pretty soon as I contemplated what I was crying about was the fact that what she experienced in church wasn't really uh, anything like what most of us as grown people think about as good church. All she had was a couple of really loving parents helping her get ready in the morning. Um, she had loving Miss Beth. Miss Beth is her, the, the, the preschool teacher who would greet her at the door. And in fact, on, on weeks that she wasn't there, she loved Ada so much that she would call my daughter, Andrea, and say, tell Ada I won't be there today for her. I just don't want her to be afraid when she doesn't see my face. Loving Miss Beth and some loving little two-and-a-half-year-old uh, friends, sometimes loving, sometimes not so loving. Um, a loving story about a loving Jesus, some loving Kool-Aid and some loving crackers. She had some kind of goodness that so deeply touched her two-and-a-half-year-old heart with goodness that she came in and the first words out of her mouth, she was just bubbling, I had good church today, Papa. Well, a couple years ago, when I was writing that chapter about my granddaughter, Ada, this is what I said. Loving parents, loving Miss Beth, a loving Jesus, mostly loving young brothers and sisters. Could it be that good church for Ada is exactly what good church is meant to be for all of us? A place where the love of our Abba isn't simply talked about, but profoundly experienced in a way that heals us. Good church. So this is what we really want to talk about this morning. And the big idea is probably something like this. The body of Christ, I've come to believe, biblically speaking, the body of Christ is primarily, it's not only this, but it's primarily a healing community where the power of the love of Christ overwhelms and heals the wound of sin in our lives. We come here primarily to heal. And in fact, uh, last week, I think in most of the services, we talked about before we closed off, in, in reference to this coming week, we talked about 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, that says, and above all things, have fervent love for one another. Peter's writing the churches in Asia Minor. This is a message to the church. He says to the church, to Hope Community Church of Detroit, to Scottsdale Bible Church, to the churches in Asia Minor in the first century, to every church that ever was, he says, above all things, church, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover, you could translate overwhelm, I believe you can translate heal, a multitude of sins. Peter here is quoting a proverb, Proverb 10, 12, if you want to know the exact proverb, that says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. So any exegete that's looking at the context of what he's quoting would say, well, at least Peter was saying that if we love one another well, we won't be as judgmental of one another. We'll, we'll, we'll receive each other in our baggage uh, uh, more than not. 
He's at least saying that. I've come to believe he's saying something so much more. I think he's saying something like John, or Jesus was saying to his disciples in John 15 when he was sending them out and he knew 10 of the 11 would be martyred. When he said, as the Father has loved me, so love I you as you follow me out after I leave and you follow me, abide in my love, my healing, covering, empowering love. The only way you can follow me through what you're going through, what you're going to be going through is by abiding in my love. Or something like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we kind of, we kind of extrapolate 1 Corinthians 13 and make it a, a, a wedding thing or a Hallmark card poem. But really, Paul there is talking about what the church is. And he says, no, we have spiritual gifts, chapter 12. He says in chapter 14, we've got prophecy. These are powerful things. But in the middle, he says, let me tell you what the main thing is. He says, if you speak with the tongue of men and of angels, if you give your body to be burned, implying if you have great spiritual gifts, if you speak with the gift of prophecy, but if you don't have love in the body of Christ, you've got absolutely nothing. I think Peter is saying something like Jude. Some people think Jude was a half-brother of Jesus, so maybe he was there in John 15 when all this went down, or maybe he, was, maybe he heard Jesus say this uh, during his time as his brother. But in Jude, that, that book that is written to a, a group of other churches in the ancient world that were really experiencing persecution about how to survive as the church, and he says at the end, he says, this is how you survive. Keep yourselves in the love of God. I think Peter is saying something like that. I think he is saying that Christ's love, the love of Christ, is a powerful antidote to the poison of sin that our enemy has been trying and will continue to try to use to destroy us. So when we gather, it could be at a coffee shop with a couple of brothers and sisters. When we gather, it could be a support group. When we gather, it could be a home Bible study. When we gather like this, with all the venues this morning, when we gather as brothers and sisters in Christ in his name, we come in bullet ridden from the battle. And we come in needing the healing power of Christ. And this is the place, this is the gathering where we turn to each other at some point and give and receive the powerful love of God that covers a multitude of sins. We need some loving worship like you get here. We need a loving word. I hope you know this morning that I love you. I'm not just talking at you. I love you. That Jamie loves you. Your other teachers that come here, they love you. But we also need, I think Peter is implying, some love, some healing love from one another. It ought to be nearly impossible for anyone to gather with the church of Jesus Christ anytime anywhere and not be impacted by the love that heals a multitude of sins. Before I move on, let me just remind us that in the early church, that's all they had. They had no video screens, they had no bands, they had no buildings, they had no money. They had no friends. They were ostracized. For a while they were accepted by Rome because they were looked upon as being kind of a Jewish cult, but then the Jews disowned them, and I understand why, doctrinally and historically, and all of a sudden, they were an aberrant group that refused to call Caesar Lord. They called this dead Nazarene Lord. They had nothing. 
They had nothing but the love that covers a multitude of sins. And yet historians tell us that in the face of the greatest despotic empire representative of hell that history has ever known, the church started with about 10,000 people at the end of the first century. And by the time of Constantine in the early fourth century, they had grown to approximately 20 million. How? Because of the love that heals a multitude of sins. So, getting a bit more specific this morning, where do we even start to specifically present to one another in the body of Christ this radically loving, healing presence? I'm going to suggest just two things this morning. There are many ways, but these are two that have just, I think they're so foundational. They're listed in Peter's writing here and in Paul's writing as being so foundational under the aegis of love of how we are to be present to one another in this healing way, this loving healing way that I'm going to share these two this morning. And the first one is this. First, first, let the love of Christ move you to feel with a brother or sister's story. You say, where's that in the Bible? Well, actually, in Peter's letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, he says this, finally, all of you, be of one mind. This is Peter's call to unity. Every epistle, every letter, every apostle that writes has a call, his own call to unity because they're echoing what Jesus said in John 17. If the church isn't one, how is the world going to know that I come from God? They're going to see us as splintered. They're going to think we're just like any of the other radical, messed up, jacked up religions. And so every epistle has a call to unity. This is Peter's call to unity. Be of one mind. You don't have to think alike, but you have to have the mind of Christ. That's what holds you together. And then he says, um, let me tell you in love how, how to love one another in such a way that you can stay together and be unified. And he, he, there's a list, but I'm not giving you the list. I'm just giving you the first thing on his list. He says, have compassion for one another. Now, that's not a bad translation. And you know, the times I've taught here, I, I'm always talking about how the text usually says what it means, and the Greek doesn't really give that much light. But this is one of those times where I think it does shed a little light. This Greek word here is a compound word. Um, the first part of the compound word is the uh, preposition or the prefix sum, S-U-M. And it means simply with. It's attached to a lot of words where, where the author wants to say something and then to say with. Uh, going to the store, with. Um, I'm reading the Bible, with. Sum will be on the front of one of those words. The second half of this compound Greek adjective is the word pathes, the Greek word pathos, or the passion of the Christ, comes from this, this Greek word. It means to experience something. It means to feel something. And so I think a more poignant, maybe, you know, sometimes we can blow off the word compassion, but I don't think you can blow off this word translated this way. Peter says, the first way that I'm calling you to love in such a way that you're unified, to heal the wounds that the enemy is perpetrating upon you. When you get together, I want you to turn to one another and feel with one another. Not just hear words, I want you to feel the other person with your heart. By the way, this is an adjective related to the same Greek root in a verb that's used in Hebrews chapter four, 
where the author talks about Jesus being our high priest. Remember this text, Hebrews 4.15? Jesus is our high priest who feels with our weaknesses. So really, Peter is just asking us to do for one another here what Jesus came to do for us. So how do we turn toward one another? Boots on the ground. How do we feel with one another? Here's a couple of thoughts. First of all, we pause to vulnerably hear the other person's story. It could be the story of the moment. This is what happened to me on the way to church. It could be the story of their life. This is what it's been like growing up Latino in our culture. This is what it's been like to be a woman in a male-dominated world. This is what it's like to be a teenager in today's culture and society. So have you thought about it lately? What does it mean to be a child? How does it feel? All these tall people walking around who don't seem to understand how the weather is down here. If you're a man, what does it feel like to be a woman? And don't tell me you can't know. I've grown up with three daughters, an amazing, strong wife. You heard the story I told last week. Two neutered cats and two female dogs. And I'm asked quite often, if you can imagine, to speak to women's groups. And I'll usually start off talking about, I'll usually say, can I just apologize for, because I know many of you, you've invited me as a man to speak to you as a woman, and many of you have been hurt by men. The tears start to flow. When I'm talking to a women's group, many times I'll start to say we, as if I'm one of the sisters. I can't help myself, even when I catch myself, about two paragraphs later, I'm saying it again. Don't tell me, brothers, that we can't know what it's like to be a a daughter of God in a male-dominated culture if we will just pause to turn as Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, the Christ who's turned to us this morning. He's turning and he's feeling with us. If we turn and say, let me just be present to you, sister. Share with me what's really going on. What would it be like to be a single mom? What would it be like to be a single woman? How would it feel to have no money? What would it feel like to live with chronic pain? What would it feel like to be old, losing friends and family and health and have a fear of dying? What would it feel like to be young and inexperienced and afraid? What would it feel like to grow up African-American in our culture today, post Jim Crow, post civil rights, and recently, unbelievably revealed racism, racist culture in America. What would it be like to today be an African-American human being in the wake of the Philando Castile verdict of just a couple of days ago? where a young black brother was shot by an officer of the law, I'm sure a good man, 
and then he was acquitted. I'm not making a judgment on that particular court case because I wasn't there. I don't know enough of the details. Although if you watch the video, watch the video and be open with your heart. Feel that video. We talk about healing racism and we have seminars and we read books. And those of us who are Caucasian, we, we're proud of ourselves if we know a person of color and they haven't run off from us and they accept us into their journey. But can I tell you why the church today is not healed of racism? And why there's still white church and black church and Latino church and Asian church and it, sometimes it's language. Many times it's because no one has bothered to obey the word of God, to love enough to sit with someone and just hear their story. It's not your story, it's their story. Just to love enough to feel what their story. I have a guy, a family that lives across the street from us, African-American brother, um, sells pharmaceuticals, or I think he sells equipment actually to uh, surgeons that operate. And then three or four months ago when all, you know, there was just another, I don't know if it was after the Charleston shootings. Maybe it was after what happened in Dallas. Maybe it was after the Philando Castile shooting. I just went over and, and, you know, he offered me something to drink and we sat on his back porch. We were just kicking it. He's raising two little girls. I've raised three girls, you know, just two dads, just kicking it. Finally, I leaned forward in my chair and I said, how are you feeling today with everything that's going on in our culture? He got huge tears in his eyes. He said, I'm afraid. I said, are you afraid for your little girls? You afraid for your wife? He said, no, I'm not afraid for my little girls. I'm not afraid for my wife. He said, I'm afraid for me. I'm a middle-class African-American man. I live in a suburb on the edge of Detroit. My mother was an opera singer, but I'm a person of color. And I just know in the climate today, I am at risk. And if you don't know that, my brothers and sisters, then you're not listening to someone else's story. And then we embraced and he wept on this white man's shoulder. Not because I'm white, not because I'm a good guy, but because I listened to and I felt his story. What would it like to be, uh, what, would it, what would it be like to be a person who believes in Jesus Christ, but since you've been nine years old, you've been same-sex attracted. I'm not saying we have to buy what everybody is believing. I'm just saying, what would it be like to feel that? What would it be like for us who may not have that story to feel with so You wanna see the gay community start to be healed and come to Jesus. Just pause with your theology. Have your theology. Know what you believe the book says. But the book also says, to start with, not your theological beliefs and how threatened someone else's belief might make us feel 
It says to love enough to put our stuff aside and just to be with someone to hear their story. We suspend judgment. It doesn't mean we approve of what's going on. We're just not, you know, there is a verse in the Bible that says, judge not lest you be judged. It doesn't mean you can't have your opinion about someone's behavior. Maybe you think it's harmful for them to love them is eventually maybe going to say, I love you too much to let you keep going down that road. And I'm going to share this with you in love. But first, first, close the mouth, suspend judgment, hear the story. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, poet from, I think, the late 19th century. If we could read the secret history of our enemies, even our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. We, we may even hate them. The minute we know about their journey, their story, we may still not like their behavior, but we start to connect with their heart. Sometimes we think a man or a woman cold. Why are you so mean when really deep down inside they're only sad? We won't know, will we, unless we pause in love according to the command of the apostle to hear their story. And finally, we don't think about our reply, but we stay present to the joys and the sorrows of the other. Have you ever been with someone and you're trying to share your own journey and it's like you can tell they are just ants in the pants to get back to me. Yeah, yeah, I really like what you're saying because one time when I, right, does that not irritate the living daylights out of you? And honestly, per Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's quote, I'm not judging what's inside of them. I would suspect they have some anxiety. I would suspect they're lonely. I would suspect they have a bad habit. But the bottom line is, um, they're not listening to your story. They're doing nothing to heal you and they're doing nothing to encourage the friendship. The love there really isn't about the other at that point. It's all about the self. What would it be like if we simply ask our loving Jesus that Paul said we should root and ground in his love to so root us and ground us in his love that when we're with someone, we know that he knows our story. We know that he knows everything and he's got his arms wrapped. We are rooted and grounded in his love. So we don't necessarily have to share our story at that moment. We can be present to that story until they've shared all they needed to share and our hearts have begun to be knit. And then maybe it'll be time for us to share our story. This is what Jesus did when he was on the planet. If you read the gospels, he didn't just walk up to folk and go, get with the program, homie. Get with the program, leper, come on. He went to the woman at the well and he sat, asked a few questions. She began to tell her story. He had some words for her later, but first he shared his heart with her so that she would share her heart with him. He connected with her heart. Same with the murderer on the cross. He didn't spout advice. He just looked over and was there with him in his pain. And the young man came to faith.
because Jesus listened to his story. You want to heal your marriage? I don't know what shape your marriage is in, but you might start by pausing to listen to your husband or your wife's story. A couple of years ago when my wife and I were really arguing more than we thought we should be after 38 years of marriage, we, we got into a marriage group. We, got into, we led the marriage group, but we also participated in the marriage group. And in one of the dialogues in preparation for that particular night's group, we took turns listening to each other's story. You know what we found out? In the height of our most difficult arguments, what, what would be, this is how it would go for us. My wife, who is more of an introvert, she would shut down. And if you can't tell, I'm more of an extrovert and I would amp up. When she shut down, I felt like she was literally, not to be crude here, but this is what I felt, like she was literally flipping me off. You're not talking to me. You think I'm stupid? You, you think I'm not worthy of being listened? You know what she told me when I paused to hear her story? She said, in those moments, I'm not even thinking about you. I'm feeling so much shame. I can't talk. Changed everything for me because I heard her story. And she thought when I got amped up, I was just so angry at her. And I said, no, when I get amped up, I'm afraid I'm afraid we're losing intimacy and I don't know what to do and I feel panicky. And if I don't know at that moment that I'm rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, I'm just going to try to make it better. And so this is my way of making it better. She goes, you mean you're not really mad? No, I'm afraid. Changed everything because she listened to my story. You want to you connect with your kids? Parents, I understand we have to set boundaries. I understand about curfews. I understand about, by the way, ignore that video. That was a joke. You know that, don't you? That's not the way to do it. I understand we need to give instruction and teaching and nurture that way. I understand, but have you paused? They're brothers and sisters in Christ too. My youngest daughter was eight years old and I was just in the throes of trying to be a better dad. I'd, I'd almost taken my life in 1990. This was about 1998, so I was growing. I really was experiencing more and more of the love of Christ, but I was trying to, trying to express that to her. So one day when she was in the car, she's my introvert. The other two are, yeah, and, and, but she, and wonderfully this way, cheerleaders the whole nine yards. She was my introvert, even though she's a dancer, she's my introvert. And I said, baby, how are you feeling about our relationship? A little tough question for an eight-year-old, but she was tracking. How do you feel about me as a dad? If you could feel something about me as a dad, notice the word feel, feel, feel. What's your heart saying? That I could be a better dad, what would you say? Never forget it. She said, well, I guess if you're asking, I wish you could come home more. Well, as a pastor, I was out trying to save the world, but I heard her story. I had sum pathes. I felt with my little girl. I went to the elders immediately. They gave me another night or two a week off. At the end of the school year, that very year, my wife said, you gotta see this. Caroline came home and handed her something. And the top of the paper was, they did an exercise called My Hero. She said, my dad helps people. But also one time he asked me, 
how I felt about him being a dad and whether there's anything he could do to be a better dad. And I told him to come home more if he could, and he did. So that's why my dad is my hero. And it began with simply being present with sum pathes to her heart. Finally, step two, there's only two this morning. Have courage after you've listened to your brother or sister's story and they know that you've really been present to tell your real story. Gulp. Now this is a word from Paul. Um, I, I, I like it that I get one thing for Peter, another thing for Paul, so you can know this is common amongst the apostolic community. Paul says, therefore, and by the way, context, Ephesians 1 through 3, theology of who we are in Christ. Ephesians 4, 1 through 24, uh, practical theology and how we live corporately together. Ephesians 4, 25, now don't miss this, the first, not the 12th, the first specific command from Paul to the Ephesian church about how to live individually with one another. Number one putting away lying, which is not just like lying about how much you weigh or your golf score. Let each one of you speak truth, not just the truth implied here, as Paul is saying, your truth with his neighbor, that would be brothers and sisters, for we are literally members of one another. How can someone love you if they don't know the real you? If all we give them is a caricature, how can we ever know if we're really loved because we've not let anyone, even our brothers and sisters in Christ, see who we really are? And I understand we're afraid. I've been hurt by being too honest been hurt by some people that in the body of Christ were very, very, very close to me and to my family. But I got to tell you, if we open up and share our truth, we have a chance to be really loved. And thus, we have a chance to heal. We have a chance to live. If we stay shut down because we're afraid, because we might get hurt, we're dead men and dead women walking You know what's very sad to me today? Um, we go on retreats, church retreats, to get honest. And we come back from the retreat, we're going, man, when's our next retreat coming? I get to be honest again. I don't know how to do that. How do I do that? How do, I don't even know how. Oh, there I am. Okay. How do I go, look here, please? What if that honesty we have at retreats is church? You know why some folk in recovery, I got a text this morning from a brother in recovery and he, he told me I could even use his name. I'm not gonna use his name, but he said, he said, I'm not being arrogant. He said, because I have no right. He said, I've learned in recovery that I don't judge anyone per step two a moment ago. Good for him. 
But he said, I am going to say that I tend to be a bit more comfortable in my recovery group here on campus than in church, because there we can tell our truth and be received, not judged. Here, I just don't know. I love AA. I love the 12 steps. They're all in the word of God. But why is AA teaching the church how to tell the truth? about our lives when the one we worship, his name is the way, the truth, and the life. I believe that when Jesus said, when two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there. And if he's there, what can the enemy do? Nada. I think this is what we're, you get with someone and say, I'm here for you. You turn toward them, not looking at the back of their head, but you turn toward them and say, I'm here. You can share your story. I'm not going to judge it. I will receive it. And then we'll talk about if there's anything to do next. But let me first be with you. And then you share your story with the mask off. In that moment, Jesus says, that's what I'm talking about. That's 1 Peter 4, 8. Love one another fervently because there, sin and all of its impact can be healed. We're looking for healing. The point I'm trying to make this one of my brothers and sisters that the apostles made 2,000 years ago is the healing we're looking for is right here. If we'll turn to one another and tell and receive the truth in Jesus, he's there at that moment. The enemy has no power over us. You can see now why in the early church, they didn't just get together once in a while. They were meeting together every day and doing this. And that's why the church grew from 10,000 to 20 million because of the power of that love. So I'm going to come down. Is that okay? Don't be afraid. I'm not going to hug and pray like I did the last time with my brother. I promise. But I loved the moment we shared. I'll never forget it. So I'd like to do something. I, I want to do this little thing with you this morning. I'm going to tell you one story and then I'm done. Sometimes in groups, just to get us into Ephesians 4, 25, when we're, we're like, how do we do it? It's just too raw. I just don't know how. I'm too afraid. We'll do this thing called the mask exercise where you, everybody gets. I did this with some of the brothers in a retreat that I did. Two of the, the leaders of the retreat go to this church. And we did it with 350 guys. On the outside of your mask is, you know, two eyes. And you're um, writing down, you get alone with the Lord, and you write down what you're trying to help people believe about you, but may, which may not be necessarily true. You're, what you're trying to project, because you, you need to hide, because you're not safe. On the inside of your mask, you ask the Lord to give you courage to write down what's more true about you that you, you need to share for the love of Christ to enter in, but you're afraid because you don't know if you'll be received. And then we get them together in small groups and they share, no fixing allowed, they just share, they just receive, they just love. You can usually hear, even amongst men, just crying everywhere because they bottled it up for so long. And then we get them back together and we debrief because it can, you, can, you can walk out going, what did I just do? What did I just tell? And yet always they're saying, Always, every group I've ever done, we need more of this. Well, of course we do, because it's the way our God made us in his truth-telling image. So I'm going to share my mask with you this morning.
did this a couple years ago, but much of this is still me, my attempt to, well, I'll just do it. Um, this is the outside of my mask. I want you to believe I'm tireless, that I'm a great prayer. You should just hear me pray. I'm a great prayer. I understand the whole Bible. I'm completely healed from all my childhood wounds. I never doubt God or myself. I always just love being a pastor. I trust God completely with my grown children. Fights with Carla are rare, but they always end in communion and the Lord's Prayer. I'm so secure that I'm never jealous. My language is always edifying. My anger issues are completely in the past. Left my water up there. This is the backside of my mask. And I won't have the privilege of getting in a small group to know if I'm received. So I'm really trusting you. After 38 years of marriage, I did this a couple years ago, Carl and I are still trying to figure out how to fight, not, how not to fight so intensely and with so many tears. And you know what? We've come into a season now where we're not fighting like that anymore, but it took cancer to get us there. What? I cry almost every day. I have big problems and questions with God about why he doesn't heal more people like my sister-in-law who died horribly of breast cancer a couple of years ago, a serious follower of Christ. Why? Why don't you heal more people? You, you healed them in the first century. Why not now? And I know you're all going to tell me your healing stories, and I love it, but I'm saying, why not more? People would line up and Jesus would heal them all. That's my question on the inside of my mask many days as a pastor when I'm watching people beg God to heal them and they don't get healed. I miss my grown children terribly because they don't live close. I love my girls, my God, and I cry a lot about it. I fear losing one of them or especially my grandkids. Sometimes I think I miss my calling and I should have been a cop. <laughs> Which is why when I even tell Philando Castillo's story, I, I've got a heart, I, I empathize with that officer. I also though can't ignore the story of a community who is feeling like something went down here that wasn't right and it had to do with skin color. I'm worn out from 33 years of doing this. Sometimes the pain around the world and around me is so intense, for a moment, I doubt that God exists. Sometimes I doubt whether I'm effective at what I do. I think that I often bring too much locker room into private conversations, which is just a Christianized way of saying, I think sometimes I swear too much. And if I let myself, I think I could abuse alcohol. 
I don't abuse alcohol. If I was abusing alcohol, I could tell you this, I'd be in a treatment plan today or I'd be at a meeting. I would not be here. I don't abuse alcohol, but behind my mask, I don't want you to know that I think I could. What if, when we came, can I tell you, there would never be a morning that you went anywhere where the church was if you knew you could just be your true self, that you wouldn't be running there unless you thought that day, for whatever reasons, you had to hide because you'd never be able to get with the church that they wouldn't be trying to say, what's really going on? Because I love you too much to let you hide. So one final story to wrap this up. It's a Father's Day kind of story, but I think it is a principle that we'll hopefully remember when we leave this room. So my oldest daughter, Andrea, who, when she was 13, she played on a Christian school softball team. And the coach acted like they were going to the Olympics. <laughs> and um, he was playing all the girls and he wouldn't play my daughter. Dads, you feeling me right now? Yeah. So I was about ready to be not Christian with this Christian brother who was the coach. In fact, this is no lie. I went to see a counselor to help me know what to do, which would be not what I was thinking of doing. The counselor said, your daughter does not need you to fix this. She needs to know that your healing, loving, protective presence is there with her in the pain. It will do its own work. Okay, and so I went to the game, the next game, and sure enough, this, God love him, I've coached, I know what it's like, but he just, anyway. <laughs> I need another counseling session, anyway. He was, you know, rah, 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 my little girl's over here on the bench, sobbing. And so I'm sitting there, and, and this non-Christian leg right here started in this direction, I will promise you. And I went instead over here by my daughter. She was sitting right here, just sobbing. And I leaned over, I put my arm around her and I got really close to her face and I said, baby, are you okay? She looked up at me with that quivering lip and the tears just running on her face. She goes, I'm all right, dad. And I said, okay, I just want you to know I'm here, I'm with you and I've got you. I'm right over here. If you need me, I'm right here. And I went over here and I stood like this. <laughs> One of the other coaches got half a brain, put her in the game, she got a hit, all was well. But here's the point for our larger purpose this morning. Sometimes we think we need because of the wounds of life and the battle and our enemy who's a thief, a killer and a destroyer of us that we need him just to fix it all. No, we don't. But we do need to know, we must know his healing, loving, protective presence. I've come to believe one of the main ways we experience that presence is through each one of us. My father, I... I offer you this last hour and 15, I offer it to you, it's yours. I pray that the word of God 
would go deep into the hearts of my brothers and sisters and in a deeper place in my own heart. This is an amazing place, Lord. This, bro this group of brothers and sisters, all the campuses, I've met some amazing folk, Lord. The these brothers and sisters, it's already a healing community. I'm praying that your Holy Spirit would exponentially open up these sons and daughters of yours so that more than ever before, this is a place where you can come, tell your truth, be received, and meet Jesus, the healer. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.